Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by BowlandBranch.com, the company that makes luxury betting affordable. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BowlandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com and use the promo code MOMANDDAD. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com slash momanddad. And by the new middle grade novel, The Terrible Two Get Worse, the hilarious sequel to The Terrible Two, which spent more than 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for February 4th, 2016, the Better Get a Shotgun edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate and the dad of Lyra, who is 10, and Harper, who is 8. And I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 7, Sam 5, and Wally 2. Hi, Allison. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, I'm finally <laughs> out of the snow. On today's show, we're talking to New York City OBGYN Gay Rodkey about Zika virus. What is she telling her patients who are concerned about getting pregnant, about traveling, and about the possible spread of the virus to the U.S.? And we'll check in with the new HBO Sesame Street with New York Magazine reporter Jessica Pressler. Plus, triumphs and fails, a listener question about daughters and gender norms, and in our Slate Plus segment, Slate Plus guru Gabe Roth himself will come talk to us in his comforting Britishy voice about a triumph or fail. But first, New Yorkers, the bad news is that we postponed the live show because of the snowstorm. I was the chicken little behind the postponement. Allison thinks I overreacted. Please commence razzing now, Allison. I mean, I the mayor's wife could make it. <laughs> she presumably has more important things to do than get through the snow and chit chat with us. But it's fine. No problem. Allison, my children went back to school today for the first time in 13 days. I mean, I'm sorry that so your cut city me a break. is ridiculous. 
This was our first, I think this was probably our first real fight. Mom and dad are fighting. Yeah. Real fight. This was. Yeah. This was, was our real actual fight. Genuinely pissed off. And we didn't even have it on the air. But the good news is that we have rescheduled for February 18th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We will be joined once again by Charlene McRae, the amazing first lady of New York City, plus John Cook, the amazing first man of the Cook Benedict household, plus a discussion on making art for kids with some superstars like superstars, musician Lori Berkner, Caldecott winner Matt De La Pena, Newberry winner Rebecca Stead. So, Brooklynites. Book your artisanal free-range babysitter and join us. We promise a super fun Thursday date night. If you bought tickets to the postponed show, you can use them for this one. If not, you can get tickets at slate.com slash live. That's February 18th, slate.com slash live. Allison, over to you. Okay, last episode, I guilted you guys about listening to our show but not liking our Facebook page, and it totally worked. We got a lot of likes. So That was great. You, that yeah. was some great mom guilt. Okay, so here we go in an effort to do it again. Please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. If you don't like our Facebook page, who knows what will happen to me? I might start to think that maybe you actually don't like me, that your refusal to simply press the like button on Facebook is a choice, not an oversight. Why? What is that about? Is it something I said? Is it my vocal fry? I put a lot of thought into this show, and it feels like you don't really think that much about me. Anyway, I don't want to force you to like us on Facebook. I want you to want to like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Okay, Dan, what's next? That really worked. I just liked us on Facebook. <laughs> Great job. Thank you. All right, so let's move on to triumphs and fails. I will start. Uh, I mean, I do kind of feel that my triumph is that uh, our family survived 12 consecutive days with no school, but uh, I'm going to brag a little about a snow-related dad triumph. So, listeners, Allison, and settle down by the fire with a glass of wine and listen to my tale. Uh, so as the snow approached two weeks ago, I emailed our next-door neighbor, Dave, and I said, Dave, didn't the guy who lived on the other side of you give you a snowblower when he moved to Florida? And Dave said, yeah, but that was like four years ago, and I've never even tried to start it. I don't even know if it works. And I was like, well, we, we have got to get it running. We are going to get 30 inches of snow on Friday. And Dave said, Dan, come on, we're not going to get 30 inches of snow. Anyways, I've got too much work to do anything on this. But hey, if you want to do something, go for it. So, listeners, I went for it. Now, <clears throat> as you may have figured out from listening to the show, I'm not the most traditionally manly man. For example, among many other things, I'm not handy. I'm not good with tools. Uh, when Dave and I were setting up a basketball hoop in the driveway, it took us like three hours, and we only got it done because uh, my babysitter, Rebecca, came out and explained how things work to us. But if ever there is a time for reinforcing gender norms in a marriage, it's a blizzard. And I knew that I was not going to delegate shoveling to anyone else. I would just do it. So either I was going to have to shovel 30 inches of snow or I could get this goddamn snowblower working. So I bought a gas can. I bought gas, I bought fuel stabilizer and small engine oil, I gassed this baby up, and I pulled the cord, and it didn't start. So I went to the hardware store, I got a spark plug wrench, I came back, I took out the spark plug, I cleaned it off, I put it back in, and I pulled the cord. It didn't start. So, I called several small engine repair places and asked them if they had any appointments available. And right now, <clears throat> if you listen carefully, anywhere in Northern Virginia, you can hear their laughter still echoing off the Blue Ridge Mountains. So I went back to the hardware store and I bought a new spark plug and I came home and I changed the spark plugs and I pulled the cord and it didn't start. So, Allison, <laughs> at this point, I thought, okay, 
I've exhausted my manly abilities, but I have other abilities. For example, I am shameless, and also I'm good at the internet. So I posted on Craigslist, I have a snowblower that won't start. You are good with small engines and want money. Come to my house and get it running, and I will give you $50. So within an hour, my phone buzzed. A dude named Randy texted me and said he would be there any minute. So at this point, it's getting dark. I set up a lantern in the driveway. Randy sits in my driveway and smokes cigarettes and tinkers and tells me that it's the carburetor. The carburetor is screwed up. I look up carburetor on Wikipedia. Randy has the entire engine of the snowblower in like multiple pieces sitting on my driveway in the dark. I bring him a thermos of hot cocoa because I'm a good host. And after an hour and a half of work, Randy pulls the cord and vroom. So my triumph is that as 30 inches of snow falls over the next 48 hours, I blissfully send it flying all over my yard. While Alia makes stew in the kitchen and cares for our increasingly feral children, I snowblow my sidewalk, Dave's sidewalk, both of our driveways. It's so much fun. While neighbors toil for days to dig themselves out, me and my kids play America's favorite family card game, Ace of Hates, available at aceofhates.com. And Dave comes out to survey his walk, and he says those three little words that every dad wants to hear. You were right. The end. Allison, how about you? I look forward to attending your funeral when Randy gives the eulogy and retells the story from his perspective. <laughs> I made that guy hot cocoa. <laughs> it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I'm high. I'm very impressed. Good job. Triumph. Thanks. Uh, okay, I have a fail this week. It will not be nearly told in a, nearly a suspenseful way. Um, but this is one of those fails that I'd really love to hear from listeners on for advice. So I think I've mentioned this before, but Harry really loves football. He's just he's super into it. He loves to watch it. He loves to play it. He loves to read about it and talk about it. And John and I, despite knowing the dangers of the sport and being people who read, uh, have encouraged this love because it makes him happy and it gets him outside and active and because we can't get him to read other – like we can't get him to read a Harry Potter book or a Percy Jackson book, but we can get him to read – a book of football facts or a biography of John Madden or the Wikipedia page on the AFL. So now, no surprise, he really, really wants to play on the town peewee team. And although I know I'm supposed to be totally opposed to this, I'm considering letting him. And I recently was talking to a great neighborhood dad whose son also really loves to play football with the kids on the block. And I said, so are you going to let him play, even just flag football while he's young? And he looked at me like I was... An alien. Like I had just said, are you going to let your kid like snort peewee coke? Uh, <laughs> but still, I am considering it. And it's not just because he really wants to do it and it brings him joy. I think it could be a positive experience for him at this age. And my standard defense of this thinking is that he won't actually ever be good enough to play in high school uh, when this really becomes dangerous. But I'm not sure if that's a legitimate argument or not. What do you think? I think you can't make that argument now. You do, you a don't know how good he's going to be, and b by the time he reaches high school, ninety percent of parents won't let their kids play football. So anyone who will play can will like get a spot on the team. Yeah. Uh this is a really hard decision. Uh, so tell me, based on your reading, um, and based on what you know about the Pee Wee League, what are the dangers at this age as opposed to the dangers in high school, for example, where the hits are harder and the game is faster. Well, I mean, you're overestimating how much research I've done. I mean, I don't even know. <laughs> All I did was email the lady at the league and ask. I don't even know if it's 
If it, I doubt it. I mean, I can't imagine that. Will my kid be concussed in your league? No, I asked. Oh. I asked if they have touch football options or flag football options because the because the website doesn't isn't very clear and it seems like it's all tackle. Maybe she's not writing back because she's like, I got, we got another one from Brooklyn. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, I think the harder the hits, the more dangerous it is, clearly. I mean, it seems to me that if you look hard enough, you can find flag or touch football things that your kid can do. There have got to be some. And I would, if I were you, I would not sign him up for peewee tackle football before you, like, give it everything you can to find a non-tackle option And you don't think flag football is, like, just a gateway drug to regular football? (laughs) It's not as much of a gateway drug as regular football is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, but I, I want to hear what our listeners what have doing. to say. I mean, yeah, I would yeah. like to hear what listeners have to yeah. say. I'm not sure. I, it's, I mean, we had, I, yeah, we had just this long conversation yesterday about it, and he just, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously him wanting to do it is not a reason to do it, but I, I'm very torn, much more torn than I would think I would be. I will tell you that he should definitely read John Madden's autobiography, Hey, Wait a Minute, I Wrote a Book, which is great. Really? I mean, it's very funny. It was very funny to me when I was like 10. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Highly recommended. Good tip. All right. Let's move on. Mom and Dad are Fighting is brought to you by Bull and Branch. So, Allison, another thing I did while my neighbors were shoveling during the blizzard was I slept. I slept whenever I could during the blizzard because sleep matters to parents so you should get your sheets from a company that takes sleep as seriously as you do and that company is bull and branch they've reinvented sheets and bedding with the sole purpose of making your nights more comfortable than ever at bullandbranch.com you know you're paying for quality fair trade certified sheets and not department store overhead you're getting amazingly luxurious sheets for just a couple hundred bucks go online to bull that's b-o-l-l like a cotton bowl and branch.com and they'll let you try them risk-free for 30 nights if you don't like them just return them it gets even better go to bullandbranch.com today for 20 percent off your entire order sheets towels blankets duvet covers anything you order plus free shipping bullandbranch.com and 20 percent off with promo code mom and dad back to the show Earlier this week, the World Health Organization declared the Zika virus an international health emergency. As many as 4 million people could be infected with the virus worldwide, though the vast majority of them will only feel the most minor symptoms and not be in any danger at all. The concern, then, is that the mosquito-borne illness is causing a rise in cases of microcephaly, a rare and extremely serious birth defect in Brazil. Some countries, like El Salvador, have taken the extreme step of telling women not to get pregnant. Here in the States, there are no such warnings and much less danger of infection. But that doesn't mean pregnant women and women planning to become pregnant and their partners aren't nervous nonetheless. Today, Dr. Gay Rodkey in New York City OBGYN is joining us on the phone to give us some straight talk on Zika. Hi there, doctor. Hi there. So let's say I'm a longtime patient of yours, and I'm hoping to get pregnant this year, and I come to your office and say, I'm considering waiting because I'm nervous about Zika. What do you tell me? Well, actually, if you live in New York, now is a great time to get pregnant. Um, <laughs> and let me explain. Um, right now, uh, Zika is present throughout, as you mentioned, Central and South America, uh, as well as the Caribbean. And it is spread by mosquitoes, the Aedes mosquitoes, that are really throughout even the southeastern United States. It's probably only a matter of time until Zika comes here. And if Zika comes here, I would prefer that 
you had been pregnant and were closer to delivery before it even came uh, within reach of you, if I could. So you seem more nervous about this than I, or concerned about this than I thought you would. If you were, you you know, we have listeners all over the country. If you were talking to listeners that are in, you know, in the Southeast, uh, this is, you think, something for them to go to their doctors and talk about. This is well, not a- I don't know how much their doctors, uh, you know, how much going to their doctors to talk about it will, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure that if they haven't been in a place where it's known to be when they're pregnant, that there's much to say. Certainly if a woman has been in a place where this is now uh, being spread widely, which is now 28 countries in Central and South America and the Caribbean, I think that if they've been to those countries and if they've had even uh, a mild viral syndrome, uh, it's it's going to be uh, an opportunity for uh, close follow-up and probably a lot more anxiety during the pregnancy than we would like anybody to have to have. If people want to know where the virus is and where it's endemic, uh, the CDC's website at cdc.gov is a great source of information. They also have, um, since this virus is spread by the same mosquitoes that spread uh, dengue and yellow fever, if you look at the articles for dengue, uh, they can show you the distribution of this type of of mosquito around the world, actually. So um, it's unlikely to remain a Central and South American problem. It's been interesting seeing this story just sort of blow up over the last few weeks. And part of it is, of course, is that there's a very specific suspected results to these infections in pregnant women and something that can be tracked and that you can take pictures of. But it also does seem to feed a very specific kind of anxiety that people who are having children or thinking about having children feel. And it just reminds me of sort of like a sort of series of uh, scares that you have every couple of years about pollution or sushi or, you know, high tension power lines or whatever. Like there are always things that people get very nervous about. And so it's useful to me, I think, to hear you, a doctor, taking this seriously. And what role do you play in assuaging or or helping your patients deal with these anxieties and help make plans around them? Well, I think that we have to discuss the fact that everybody's tolerance for risk is different and everybody's uh, ascertainment of what is a significant risk is different. I mean, one in 5,000 babies, uh, you know, in in Brazil is not a small number if you multiply it by the number of babies in Brazil. And if it's your baby, it's 100% for you. And the problem is that you can't really reliably diagnose microcephaly until about 20 weeks of pregnancy when most people are beyond the time when they would consider termination. Um, And by the time you confirm it with a follow-up scan, a couple weeks later, you're up against legal barriers to termination uh, pretty soon. So um, since we don't have a vaccine, I think we need to talk about the risks and prevention. Um, And we need to deal with the preventable and non-preventable infections. So if I had someone who was not pregnant and contracepting, and they've had a trip to Brazil to meet, you know, their new in-laws, 
planned for two years or whatever, um, certainly there's not a good reason to tell them to cancel that trip. Although, I would remember that right now it's summer in the Southern Hemisphere. It's probably a great time for the mosquitoes. They need water, standing water to breathe, but not very much. A bottle cap's enough. Um, So if I had a patient who either really wanted to travel there uh, or was going to travel there no matter what, you know, I would I would suggest that they should wear clothing that covers them. If you're staying in hotels, uh, stay in the the bigger hotels that are going to have screens and air conditioning, and don't sit out for long periods in the evening uh, when when the mosquitoes are are more active. Um, I think a lot of control is going to come down to mosquito control because it'll undoubtedly be a while before we have uh, a vaccine for for this particular virus. The the next thing to do is to kind of put things in context. I mean, look, we can compare this to other viruses that we don't want pregnant women to get that are person-to-person transmitted, things like chickenpox that are very contagious just from, you know, droplet and and respiratory transmission. Um, It also carries uh, great risk in the first and second trimester and also can cause microcephaly. Um, or CMV, uh, which is another virus that can cause microcephaly that probably 25% of the population has evidence of having had CMV at some point. Um, and if a mother gets that in the first trimester, there's about a 30% uh, uh, chance of congenital CMV, and that can lead to a 12 to 18% chance of serious neurological defects that persist. Are there tests being developed to um, be able to detect microcephaly earlier? Because the conversations I've had with with friends of mine who are considering getting pregnant and are concerned about this are really largely about if I could know before, if I could know earlier, like when when my state would allow me to still get an abortion, I wouldn't be as frightened. Well, the problem is that in the first trimester, you pretty much establish dates by the size of the baby's head because there's there's much less differential. Uh, between the size of a baby that's going to be a six-pound baby and the size of a baby that's going to be a 10-pound baby when they're like six to eight weeks of gestation. So really, growth is usually measured as a rate of increase. And so you measure it, you know, you would be measuring the head size growing as you were also measuring the abdominal circumference and the the, uh, length of the thigh bone growing. And it's only when those two curves start to diverge or where you see a significant difference in the median age that you would predict by a head that size versus the median age you would predict by a thigh bone of that length. It's it's really only there that you're going to see the difference. And what we don't want to see is people, you know, some babies will be smaller than others. And so what we don't want to see is overreaction and women terminating wanted pregnancies because one single measurement was on the lower end of normal. Because after all, plus or minus two standard deviations of the means is normal. Uh, We all know people who are just constitutionally smaller than each other. So the problem we have is how much worry versus what, how much is prudent and, and how much is uh, unnecessary. How, as a doctor, how do you balance giving people 
this kind of important information for something that you clearly view as serious and stopping them from obsessing about it, from over-worrying, from being so overcome by anxiety that it ends up being counterproductive? Well, I think that some patients are more anxious than others. And I usually tell my patients that we try to prevent the things we can prevent. We try to do our due diligence and do the observations that will reassure us that things are going well. And then if they're not going well, then our job is to find the very best people to figure out what is going wrong and what the implications are in a timely fashion so that they have options open. So I think that, you know, look, no one can ever tell anyone their baby is 100% going to be fine. Even for patients who come in and have, say, a 1 in 2,000 risk of of chromosomal abnormality, they have a 1 in 2,000 risk. And even if you did an amniocentesis to rule out that 1 in 2,000 risk of all the things we can check for, there's still a background risk of about 1 in 500 babies will have something that you could not check for before the baby's born. So, you know, I think that you have to concentrate on the 499. You have to do the things that you can do, like wearing protective clothing, using insecticides, staying in good hotels, not going trekking through the swamp. You have to do the things you can do to minimize your risk so that you feel you've done what you can do. And then you have to access good people if you develop symptoms of a viral infection or an infection of any kind in pregnancy, anything that involves fever, rash, joint pain, muscle pain, or significant illness, uh, you need to be seen because those are also symptoms of things like flu, which in a normal person are not that dangerous, but pregnant women have higher rates of getting the flu and dying of flu than other people do. So it doesn't mean that you have to live in a cloistered environment, but it does mean you have to be careful and take what precautions you can. Minimize your risks. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Rocky. This is really useful. I think that people will be really interested to hear this. I hope it helps put it in perspective and yet doesn't cloister women unnecessarily. It was great. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Mom and Dad is also brought to you by Club W, a new wine club that makes finding and obtaining and drinking good wine really easy. Avoid the nightmare that is picking out wine from a wine shop. Club W sends wine directly to your door. Club W's easy six-question quiz figures out your palate, so every bottle you receive is tailored to your taste. The quiz is actually very fun. I took it today. It asks you about what kind of coffee you like and your level of citrus love and how salty you like your food. It makes you really think. Club W works directly with vineyards to cut out the middlemen, which saves you money. Club W even offers a no-risk guarantee that you'll love what they send you. And right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash momanddad. When you go to that URL, there's actually a message that says, Dan and Allison are buying your first bottle of wine. So please, really. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was so pleased. I hope I hope all our listeners are cheap dates. I was going to say make it a good one. Uh, yeah. Just go to clubw.com slash mom and dad to get 50% off of your first order today. Okay. On to our listener call. 
Each week, we answer a call from one of you, our beloved listeners. If you have a question you want Allison and I to argue about, leave us a voicemail at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, or what Allison is to me when she razzes me about postponing the show. This week's question comes from listener Joe. Take it away, Joe. My question was, what do you do when trying to dispel society norms about girls? I have a daughter, and it really bothers me when people say, well, you better get a gun soon because you know those guys are going to be coming for and you got to fight them off. I prefer to think that I can have my daughter learn self-defense and defend herself, but I'm really tired of just agreeing or not agreeing, and I don't ever know what to do when someone says that. So uh, if you could help me out, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. I suggest funny jokes. <laughs> Got any? Yeah. I mean, I yeah. Go ahead, Dan. You have the daughters. Uh, well, I I have two thoughts about this, Joe. Yes, funny jokes are one way to do it. Like just like laughing it off, making it clear through the joke that you're not that it's not that big of a deal is one way to sort of glide through that social situation. You know, that's what I often end up doing. I generally find that the people who say this to me about my daughters are almost always older. Um, they, it's not worth like making a big deal out of it, so I sort of just nod and smile, and then I try and spend the other 99.9% of my time with my daughters reinforcing that they are independent human beings who will grow up to you know make their own decisions. But I would also suggest that there is like a slight weirdness to your question, Joe. When you say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm going to teach them self-defense so they can defend themselves, it strikes me that when you pose the issue in that way, I worry that you are – kind of like buying into the same gender assumptions that those yahoos who say those dumb things to you are like you're taking it as a given that your daughters will eventually be beset by rabid teenage boys who just want to get in her pants and the only solution will be like a gun or her taking taekwondo or something but it seems to me that it's just as likely that when our daughters joe are teenagers they're going to want to get into other people's pants too uh that's just the way teenagers are. So, like, I do think it's worth thinking not only about your response to them, but also reminding yourself that this doesn't have to be the way that you think about your kids either. That just because they say these dumb things does not mean you have to think in that same way. I also think you can answer them. When I said funny jokes, I meant, like, jokes that would make the person who said that to you feel dumb and make it clear that, like, you did not agree with those dumb old preconceived notions about gender. Uh, yeah. But also... You know, you can say you could answer earnestly and just say like, "Oh, I I trust my daughters; they're smart girls." I mean, yeah. I don't think it, I don't think it needs to be I don't think it needs to be more than that. And then you should trust your daughter, raise them to be smart girls. Yeah, or you could be like, Haha, "I hope you lock up your sons <laughs> because when she's a teenager, she'll want to have sex with them." Don't say that. Dinner actually. party over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Joe. Uh, and remember, if you have a question you want to ask us, give us a call at 424-255-7833. Today's show is also brought to you by The Terrible Two Get Worse, the hilarious sequel to The Terrible Two, which spent over 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Published by Amulet Books, the series is perfect for fans of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series. The author's longtime friends and certified pranksters Mac Barnett and Jory John are bent on prankster domination in this new installment. Pranksters Miles and Niles were already pretty devious, but now that they've formed a pranking duo, they're terrible. In The Terrible Two Get Worse, their powers will be tested when their favorite nemesis, Principal Barkin, is replaced by his stern and cunning father, former Principal Barkin. 
Now Miles and Niles would do just about anything to get their old antagonist back, including pranking alongside him. Check out this great book that shows kids how they can work with their elders to solve problems and, of course, is filled with funny pranks that say Dan's kids can inflict on Dan. Uh, they're already trying. Lyra loves this book just as much as she loves the original Terrible 2. Awesome. It's very charming. I do not know that it actually teaches you how to collaborate with your elders. It more teaches you how to prank them, but I think that's fine, too. Well, they could collaborate with your wife to prank that's you. That's true, to prank me. I look forward to them Regardless, thanks, Amulet Books. Okay, Dan, what's next? All right, let's move on to our next segment. Last month, a bunch of familiar faces showed up on a brand new home. Big Bird, The Count, Elmo, Cookie Monster, the whole gang on Sesame Street have moved from public television to premium cable as new episodes are now airing on HBO, walling off the most acclaimed children's TV program of all time. Behind a paywall may seem a little bit contrary to the mission of the Sesame Workshop, but it's a move that the show needed to make to survive. Jessica Pressler reported on the move and on the shifting culture over there on Sesame Street for New York Magazine, and she joins us now to discuss. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Welcome. Why on earth did Sesame Street make this move? Why make the move from PBS to HBO? Yeah, well, I mean, for starters, I want to just say that it wasn't the whole gang that moved over because you might have noticed that some of the characters that you know from your childhood are not going to be on the show quite as much, if at all, because it turned out that um, in the past few years, uh, Sesame Street has kind of been falling off in the ratings, and that's because kids have a lot more options, including they can now choose their own programming through tablets and stuff like that. And they are kind of choosing to not watch Sesame Street. And part of that is because, according to people at Sesame Street and their many focus groups, um, children are confused by the large array of characters and by the kind of more complicated storylines. It's a very talky show. It's pretty sophisticated because it was kind of designed for parents to watch with their children. Um, but now kids are watching a lot of TV on their own, and they're choosing to kind of watch these a little bit simpler shows that are more like Friends, where they have like four characters that you see all of the time. Right. There's Dora, and there's Boots, and there's Backpack, and there's Benny, and that's it. Exactly. Um, and now, so now there's really going to be like Big Bird and Cookie Monster and Abby Cadabby and Elmo. So they made this move to HBO and they're streamlining the show. But was there, I mean, was there a financial reason? Does How does it affect yeah. Sesame Street if no one's watching? Well, like, the streamlining started before the move to HBO, which I feel like is important to note. HBO really doesn't have a lot of creative input into the show, or at least not yet. It's really new, their move there. The streamlining of the show started kind of because of this change in children's viewing habits. Um, and... So the move to HBO isn't isn't really like a huge part of that. Um, it was just because people weren't watching Sesame Street the way that they used to. Why do you guys? I mean, you just explained, I guess, part partly why that is because I guess we all used to sit and watch with our parents, and they explained it. Although I don't really remember watching with my parents. Um, I think actually, it, the way it was explained to me is that there were a lot more stay-at-home moms in the early days of Sesame Street. Moms weren't working as much, so they were like around, you know, ironing or whatever, and watching Sesame Street. And that's kind of why the Muppets had this like sophisticated other layer of adult humor, and Sesame Street had this other layer of adult humor so that it appealed to parents at the same time because you had a television and it was right. like your family television everybody was watching it now because people have all these different screens 
parents just give kids their iPads. I mean, we don't like to admit that we do that, but it, it happens occasionally. You um, talk about in your piece that the, like, sort of what I remember as being the beloved part of Ses- Sesame Street, the parodies, or maybe I don't remember that as a child. I, th- I know it as an adult. Uh, that's one the of the virally that, popular parodies. Right. Uh, well, the one in your piece was a parody of Mad Men called... Birdman. Birdman, Bird right. Man. Right, yes. genius. Uh, that they're getting rid of those. But Dan, you said you watched, a, or doing fewer of those. Dan, you said you watched a new episode on HBO and they had they had one and it was bad? It was really bad. So they oh. had one. They had one, a parody of Oranges of the New Black. It was called Oranges of the New Snack. Um, and it was in their healthy eating episode and it was not good. And it was like, it's, it struck me as like the best argument I could think of that indeed the parodies were not good and kids wouldn't get them at all. Cause there's no way that a kid would watch this and be entertained or interested in any way, shape or form. Or maybe they've dumbed it down and made it less sophisticated now. It was really dumbed down. Yes. Um, as you were reporting, Jessica, did, like, what did you hear from people inside Sesame Street about how they feel about this? I have to assume they were proud of being a sophisticated show with like jokes that parents could get too. Are they annoyed by these changes? Uh, yeah, I think that there's definitely a, a, a kind of a battle going on, or there was a battle, a very genteel Sesame Street-like battle going on between the old guard of Sesame Street who believes that um, Sesame Street, this is what they are. They're this kind of multi-layered, kind of more sophisticated program. And the kind of new people who are mostly from Nickelodeon who really just want to appeal to children, which is itself a noble goal and not unreasonable considering that it's a children's show. But there's definitely like kind of some some passive aggressive arguing, I think, going on. And I think that the season that you saw on HBO right now is kind of a product of that, which might be why there was like a bad parody as opposed to no parody. Like it was kind of <laughs> made by these two forces, these people who wanted it to exist and these people who didn't want it to exist. And, and you could see how that would be a result of something like that. So we're talking about the show as though it's like you know super sophisticated, but one of the goals of the show was to teach kids like very fundamental fundamental ABCs and math, right? Um, is that still like do the does the new guard care about that, or is that not part of the mission anymore? No, no, that is a part of the mission for sure. I mean, what's really interesting about Sesame Street is that it has changed all throughout its history. It's kind of it started out being for kids, you know, who were five years old, and they were learning letters and numbers and things like that. And as it's aged and parents started going off to work more, when their kids were uh, younger, the age of the viewership got a lot younger. So now it's like two-year-olds watching it. So it's kind of more geared towards younger children now. And the themes of it have changed, too. Like Sonia Manzano, who played Maria, she's Maria to me, (laughs) told me that um, recently, in recent years, like, it's mainly been about like assuaging children's anxiety. That's been like a huge theme of the show because that's the kind of stuff that kids want from programming now. It's not even so much learning letters and numbers. They're younger. They just want to be like calmed down from the complexity of the world. That's so interesting. Is that what kids <laughs> want or is that what parents want? Yeah, I, it's really I, sad. Yeah, well, I think that anxiety is a big problem with kids these days. So that's a that's a kind of how it's developed is to to kind of help them with that. In terms of the original mission, which was, you know, to basically to help lessen the achievement gap, really, in like poor kids and wealthy kids with more resources, is that like, how do they talk about that now? That is really interesting. So like, yeah, well, the mission is definitely still to teach kids things like healthy eating, um, 
you know, letters, numbers, all of the like basic life skills. And because the episodes are still airing on PBS, albeit nine months later, they're still going to their original audience, ostensibly, hopefully. There's just a, a kind of a big delay there. Yeah. But they still talk about that very much as a mission of the workshop in general. And the workshop does other stuff, too. Like, they do a lot of special programming that we don't see. Like, they produce entire specials for kids whose parents are in prison, for kids whose parents are dying. Um, Just a whole – there's a whole other level of stuff that they do with the Muppets. And they'll continue to do that. And they'll continue to do that stuff. Uh, I mean, it's interesting the various ways they're branching out. Allison, you sent me this piece uh, about they just launched like a venture arm to invest in startups that help kids, especially like mobile and tablet startups as a way of finding different ways into that market, which seems really smart. But it it still sort of seems like the overarching question on this is, and I want to know, Jessica, what you think, like 20 years from now. Will kids be watching Sesame Street? Is Sesame Street going to exist, or is this is it is something that is designed to be smarter than other children's programs? Uh, no matter how much they dumb it down, just doomed. No matter what. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think Sesame Street will exist. You can't really deny the power of Elmo. Elmo is just Elmo will will exist, and children will love him forever. I think, and if he wants them to learn things, and kids want to learn things, so I think that that it will exist. And in some ways, even though it's sad because we're losing a lot of the things that we like about Sesame Street, it's probably actually good that these changes are happening because I noticed that my son, who's two and a half, he totally has lost interest in Sesame Street. He was like, he's been all about Daniel Tiger. It's way, it's been way too long. It's too talky. Like Tina Fey was on like being Mother Goose and I thought it was really great. And he had like no interest because it was just going on and on forever. So I think like they do have to kind of keep up with how kids are thinking and how they're they're developing now, which is different than in the past. My kids also, I couldn't get any of them to watch Sesame Street at all. I had, they had We had like a brief phase with the Muppets, but no Sesame Street. They really didn't like it. Uh, but I'm perplexed by that because I don't really, like, yes, gadgets change and technology changes, but like, I don't really, kids... I find it hard to believe that kids change that drastically. Well, it was also I mean, there's all just we had. so much more. There's yeah, just so much there's more. So there's much so more much more. Yeah. It was yeah. like we had that and we had like the electric company. But I'm it's a lot of crap. Myself. I mean, I was trying to think like what is the, what are the descendants of Sesame Street? Like what could we at least point to and think, okay, our kids aren't going to watch Sesame Street, but they'll watch this. And this is also like good and, you know, more than just and mindless. Yeah. And I can't think of anything. No. Can you, Dan? There isn't. No, there isn't that much that is made specifically in this mode that's, like, meant to be fun and engaging but quiet and also a little bit intellectual. Like, one of the things you mentioned in your piece, Jessica, that I loved was Sesame Street has always had these sort of highbrow aspirations, you know, as they say, that's the show the world will be like, well, can we get Itzhak Perlman? And I love that about the show. And there isn't a show that does that anymore. I mean, there's like Yo Gabba Gabba, which has like hipster celebrities on it sometimes. But that's clearly not the same thing. But I am struck, though, too, by what you say about Elmo, because one thing that I had forgotten until I was reading about this more is that Elmo wasn't around when we were kids. Elmo was not a character who existed when we were kids. And when Elmo became incredibly popular in the 90s, there was this wave of backlash, not unlike the kinds of concerns we're talking about now, from parents who had once loved Sesame Street who thought Elmo was stupid and appealed too much to little, little kids and, like, you know, abandoned the mission of Sesame Street to educate. But he is now a beloved part of the show and does his part uh, to, to... 
make the show great and to make the show educational. And I sort of feel like in the same way, 20 years from now, people might look back on this era and be like, oh, well, this is when it became for younger kids, but it still remained good. Right. Yeah. When you when I kind of dug into the history of Sesame Street, the very original mission statement said that it was an evolving piece of programming and it was going to evolve with the needs of children and with the needs of communities. So, I mean, hopefully it will keep that. But the other thing that was interesting is that Jim, Jim Henson, his original vision was part of it was, you know, wanting it to help kids become better people, not just helping them learn the alphabet, but to kind of become good people. And I don't, I don't know if that is so much. I mean, I don't think that it's encouraging them to become sociopaths. But, uh, but I don't know. I didn't really hear that talked about so much, and that that's kind of interesting. And too. I don't think we look yeah. to our TV for that anymore. I mean, we look to the TV to babysit our kids, right? <laughs> right? Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Now I will say one last thing, which is that the 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 Orange is the New Black parody was bad, but it did include a Muppet who is clearly based on Laverne Cox, who I assume is now the first officially transgender <laughs> Muppet, which I thought was great. That's delightful. <laughs> that is pretty delightful. Uh, all right. So, go. listeners, tell us uh, what you think. I really want to know, do you watch Sesame Street? Do your kids watch Sesame Street? Do you like this new, shorter, streamlined version without Elmo's World and without other things you might remember? Go to Facebook.com slash Mom and Dad are Fighting and let us know. All right, Jessica's story is called What Will HBO's Sesame Street Look Like? It's in New York Magazine. It's really great. We'll post a link on our Facebook page. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks, Dan. All right, before we move on to recommendations, there's one other piece of business we want to mention. Panoply has a brand new podcast series launching this week, which we think you will enjoy. It is really attuned to the needs of parents. It is called Quiet, The Power of Introverts. It's hosted by Susan Cain, the best-selling author of the book Quiet. The whole podcast series is about parenting and teaching introverted children. The series speaks to parents, to teachers, and to kids, and gives parents great tips on how they can help their quiet kids thrive. Once again, it's called Quiet, The Power of Introverts with Susan Cain. It launches this Thursday, the same day our show goes live. And you can subscribe and hear a sneak peek of the show at iTunes.com slash quiet. I'm incredibly interested in listening to the show, actually. I do not have any quiet children, but I would love to hear what that... <laughs> no, I'm serious, though. That's like a, a part of parenting I hadn't really thought about, and I want to I want to know more. Yeah, it sounds interesting. I will definitely listen in. All right, recommendations. Allison, what do you got? We have been reading an old book about the Greek gods and myths to the boys, and they're really they're totally transfixed. And I'm pretty t- transfixed, too. I think this is a classic book, uh, according to Slate Slack. This is a classic book that I just... My parents didn't read to me when I was young. Mom, why didn't you read this to me when I was young? Uh, I'm sure there are many great books about the Greek gods, but I'm going to recommend this one, which is Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths. Do yes, you know this that book? is that is the book of it's Greek the myths. book. That's okay, correct. I didn't it's know that. Book, yeah. Somebody bought it for us. Okay, well, it's full <laughs> of beautiful illustrations and great storytelling. And here's my corny joke. Ready? I can't say it Ready. without introducing it. Greek God only know how many names I mispronounced while reading this book. <laughs> Uh, I would also recommend, if your kids love that, Dolaire's Book of Nordic Myths. Ah, okay, good to know. We'll move on to that one. Also, two quick additional recommendations. One, a shout-out to sitting at the bar when you go out to dinner alone with one of your children. We just I just did this with Harry, and we had, like, the best dinner conversation. And I really think it was something about the seating, about the bar, or something, like, more, easier for him to talk to me in that in that setting. So recommend that. And then... You guys have to watch the OJ miniseries on FX. This has nothing to do with parenting, although 
there are great Kardashian family scenes. But if you're listening to the show, you are likely our generation, which means you watch the whole OJ saga unfold in real time. And I think you will love this show. Those are great recommendations. Thank you. you um, I'm, also, I'm also recommending a TV show. Uh, I'm recommending Project Runway Junior. Um, not only because it is a fun show that my kids completely love. Not only because it has encouraged them to uh, design a bunch of outfits. I mean, by design outfits, I mean they draw pictures on paper of clothes they already own. And then they go put those clothes on in weird combinations. And then they like strut around the house modeling them. Not only because it got Harper more interested in sewing, which she now really is into, but also, this surprised me a little bit. I didn't think of this ahead of time, but it, it is a show that has introduced them to a lot of teenagers who are smart and ambitious and multi-ethnic and non-traditional gender conforming. It is sort of like the diverse, cool school that they would have been able to go to if we had not left New York. Uh, but the show is super entertaining and kids really love it. And I think you will love it too if you watch it with your kids. That's a good one. All right. That's our show. Mom and Dad are Fighting is taped before a live studio audience. Just kidding. But remember that you can come be our live studio audience in Brooklyn on February 18th. Go to slate.com slash live. Please like us on Facebook so that Allison thinks you really actually like her. Facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And email us with ideas for topics and guests at mom and dad at slate.com. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. To listen to our other great shows, go to iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and to our intern, Shiva Bayat. Thanks to Steve Lichtai, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers, the chief creative officer of Panoply. Thanks to our guests, Jessica Pressler, Gabe Roth, and Dr. Gay Radke. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. During this presidential election season, how can you shine when the conversation turns to politics? By listening to the Panoply Network's full lineup of political podcasts. There's Podcast for America with MSNBC's Alex Wagner, the campaign history show Whistle Stop with John Dickerson, The Weeds, a deep dive into policy with boxes as recline, and the granddaddy of political podcasts, Slate's Political Gab Fest. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.